I have here a photo. Throw up this photo. I have a photo from the show, yell it out, Downton Abbey. Raise your hand if you've ever watched an episode of Downton Abbey. Yes, so have I. Okay, now here we have the family seated at one of their formal dinners. They're being waited on by the staff. Who are the great people in this photo? Yes, that's a trick question. But we all know that the great people are the ones dressed up, seated at the table, being served, right? Great people get served, and the not-so-great people do the serving. That's our culture. That's how we were raised. We know that in our gut. And yet, what Jesus teaches us is that if this were a picture of the kingdom of God, the great people are the waiters. The great people in the kingdom of God do the serving, and those who are needy get served. So we're in a series on the gospel of Mark, titled Marked. We want our lives to be marked by our encounter with Jesus Christ through this study of his life and teaching. And Jesus tells us that in heaven, many who are first now will be last then, and many who are last now will be first then. In other words, uh, when we get to heaven, we're going to be surprised at who is considered great in God's eyes. And people that we just assumed were great here on earth, and we just figured they're great people, they're going to be great in heaven, many of those will actually be shown to be not so great. And many that we completely disregarded, we didn't think they were great at all, we didn't give them much mind, we get to heaven, we're going to realize, what? They're the truly great people, and I completely didn't see that. Now, here at Clearwater Church, I'm the founding pastor, I get to preach, and so the world would think, Mike's first, right? He's, he's great in that community. Well, does God think that? Only God and I know, and it, but it will be shown. And I'm only great if I'm doing this because I love God and I love you and out of a servant's heart. And there are many other reasons to be a pastor and anything else that we do. But I do want to be great. And so you know, if you want to be great in God's eyes, you got to know how God defines greatness. And that's what we're going to see today. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to... Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, and we're going to be looking at verses 33 to 37 today. By the way, we want you to get the most out of this series, and you'll get more out of it the more you put into it. And we have these half sheets of paper. They're uh, back at the information desk. And they tell you all of the biblical texts we're, we're preaching each week and recommend some sections, other portions of the Gospel of John to read in advance uh, so that you come uh, with your mind already uh, saturated in the Scriptures. Also, there are some online Bible studies we recommend. Sabrina's doing the one uh, by the Gospel Coalition. She says it's tremendous. And uh, some of our journey groups are discussing the Sermon from the Week. By the way, the Christian life is meant to live, be lived in community, not to be done alone. And one of the places that we uh, press for community is in our journey groups, and we have journey group 
a directory with lots of different groups meeting at lots of different times, studying lots of different things. Find one that works for you, get involved. If you missed the sermon for the week, then you can catch up online at clearwater.church. So Mark chapter 9, verse 33, we read, And they came to Capernaum. Who's the they? Jesus and his inner circle. Jesus and the, uh, at a minimum, the 12 disciples. At this stage in Jesus' ministry, he's purposely avoiding the crowd. He's really uh, drilling down with the disciples, trying to uh, get them to understand what his true mission is. And when he was in the house, probably Peter's house, Capernaum is right on the uh, Mediterranean, uh, not the Mediterranean, right on the Sea of Galilee. Uh, And he probably is at Peter's house. He asked them, what were you discussing on the way? Jesus knew, knew what they were discussing, but he wants them to admit it and uh, enter into this. But they kept silent. Not because they didn't have an answer. They knew full well what they'd been discussing on the way. But they were probably embarrassed, uh, recognizing at some level that Jesus wouldn't have approved of their jockeying for a position, their uh, concern for their own glory and their own prominence. Even Peter, who in much of the Bible can't seem to keep his mouth shut, even Peter's, (laughs) who's going to answer Jesus? Nobody. They're all quiet because they're guilty. But they kept silent, for on the way they had been, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. I wonder what that argument sounded like. Because they're obviously, uh, they're, they're making an argument. I'm the greatest because, right? So I can imagine, you know, Peter, James, and John, they're like, it's, it's one of the three of us because Jesus invited only us to go up on that mount and see him transformed into his glory. We were, we're obviously the most important uh, so it's one of the three of us. I could see another uh, disciple saying, but wait a second. I've cast out more demons than all the rest of you, so I'm the greatest because I obviously produce the most. And, and some other disciple says, wait a second. The coolest healing God did through me. Greatest. I'm the greatest. Somebody else like Peter maybe said, but Jesus gave me an awesome nickname. I am the rock. And on the rock... Uh, he's going to build his church, and so I'm the greatest. And then James and John are like, but we're the sons of thunder. That's an even cooler nickname. <laughs> Boom. And so they're arguing based on you know, achievement and uh, relational proximity to Jesus. And they've got their argument. And, it, and their, their understanding of greatness, their, the, their definition of greatness, the reasons they think some people are greater than others, it's all worldly thinking. Well, and that's because that's what they've grown up in. But how does Jesus define greatness? And Jesus, fortunately in this text, he tells us how God views greatness. Verse 35. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them. So Jesus is seated. He's 
calls the disciples. So this is a formal teaching session. Jesus is about to take the boys to school on greatness. Let me tell you what true greatness is. Greatness according to God. Greatness in the kingdom of God, which is really the only thing that matters because it is the kingdom of God that will last forever and ever and fill the earth. The kingdoms of this world will pass away. Their definitions of greatness are very temporary. If you want to be great for eternity, you got to be great according to God's definition of greatness. So he sat down, he calls the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Now he doesn't berate the disciples for wanting to be great. Hey, if you want to be first, if you want to be the greatest, if you want to be number one uh, in God's eyes, that's not a bad thing. Why? Well, we don't like it when people are um, desire to be the greatest because in, according to the world's definition of greatness, you're the greatest means I'm not the greatest, right? And your greatness almost always comes at other people's expense. But that's not the case in the kingdom of God. Why? Because greatness in the kingdom of God is all about service. It's all about putting your needs below other people's needs, which means the greater you are, the better off we are. Go be as great as you want to be, according to God, because you become a bigger servant and, and put my needs even higher. So we, all, all, we are all blessed when people are truly being great. Now, before, uh, we, we just need to say this right off the bat. Who is the greatest of all? The one who was, who, the one who put his own, own needs below everybody else's. The one who truly became the servant of all, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the greatest because he was the greatest servant. Praise Jesus. And, but he calls us to be, follow his example and uh, to become great like he is great. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all. So I was a missionary in Russia for nine months, right out of college, and I took public transportation everywhere. And so I found myself waiting in line for lots of buses and, and trains and tramvies, uh, and there were very often more people waiting in line than there were seats on the bus. And so, uh, and there were always people trying to cut in line. And so I had to stand my ground. I had to hold my place in line. And sometimes it required some elbows, right? And, um, and it was amazing how people, aggressive people would get. And, and so here's a picture. This is not Russia, but it, I experienced that a lot. And they, they grabbed the end and just heave their bodies forward and so one time it was so packed I'm I get pushed I'm not even touching the floor my feet are off the floor off the ground and I'm sitting on someone and it's a grandma a babushka so I'm with this other missionary and I'm like I'm sitting on a grandma's head and I can't do anything about it and it was I felt terrible but I was completely packed in there and event and then that just that's the way it was until the bus stopped again and we all come piling out. Well, so I saw a lot of people 
cutting to the front of the line, racing to the front of the line. Otherwise, you, you, know, you might not get on the bus. They might run out of what you're wanting. And, and that's just, that's our natural instinct is to race to the front of the line to make sure our needs are met. And, and Jesus is saying, great people, they don't race to the front of the line. They race to the end of the line. They race to the end of the line so that other people can get their needs met. James Embry, uh, Pastor James, he went to Taylor University. And uh, Taylor, one, a, a student from the past by the name of Samuel Morris, who came from West Africa, and it was just a miraculous how he came to Christ. It's a miraculous. You can find books on Samuel Morris. Amazing how he got to America. He ends up at Taylor University in the late 1800s. And he has been called by God to study, to become a missionary. He wants to go back to his hometown. And so the president of Taylor University at the time is showing Samuel Morris around campus and says, Samuel, uh, where would you, what room do you want? And Samuel Morris is reported as having said, is, if there, is there a room that nobody else wants? Give me that one. He just, and I guess that was the attitude that he had. He was just a humble guy who said, let, let the other students get the rooms they want. Whatever's left over, I'm content with that. And that'll be good enough for me. And so during the, there's a week at Taylor where they, kind of divvy out all the rooms, and students get very uh, excited about and very committed to being in certain rooms, and so they plaster all over the campus during that week Samuel Morris's statement. If there's a room that nobody else wants, give me that one. In other words, listen, if multiple, uh, multiple people want that room, if you get it, that means somebody else who wants it doesn't get it, and so why should you be more committed to your own you know, happiness and getting your own way than others. And that's what Jesus tells us in, uh, or not Jesus, the Apostle Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2. We read this. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. I, I have, I've done that my whole life. What part of that have I done my whole life, right? Uh, I have not even remotely lived up to this. Let me just say that. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. How much uh, in my life has been done for, be, motivated by, for self and because I'm conceited, meaning I'm thinking of myself and my needs more highly than others. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. I, God is calling us to value other people even higher than ourselves. And that's a choice we make. It's not because they are truly better. It's because we're following the example of Christ and we're choosing to value them. Let each of you look not only to his own t interests. And we do. We have to make sure we're fed and clothed and get sleep and exercise. But also look to the interests of others. In other words, God is saying, I don't want you to just be concerned about getting your own needs met. I want you to be concerned about getting other people's needs met and put it into action. Don't just spend your time and energy 
and attention on yourself and in your little family. Uh, think about others. And then Jesus broadens that others with the story of the Good Samaritan to include, who's my neighbor? Anyone in need on planet Earth, no matter what their skin color, age, ethnicity, race, etc. What does it look like to race to the end of the line in your life? Well, I had two things that just jumped out for me. One is prayer. And when I go to pray, uh, how much of that is praying for me and mine and that the Lord would bless us and how much is praying for other people? I just think it's, it's an incredibly selfless act to take time and energy and pray that God would bless other people. And don't even tell them about it, right? And you're going to the Lord and you are fervently saying, God, my brother, my sister in Christ has a need. Here it is. Please, would you meet that need, Lord? And you're praying with fervency and specificity. And the Bible says the fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. That is a selfless act. That is a great act in the eyes of God. That is a great act. Another simple one is I come home at the end of the day and I, what do I want to do? I want to grab a good book and go flop down on the couch and relax. But Sabrina has some needs too and my kids have needs and so greatness is I go check in with Sabrina. Hey, how's your day? You have anything you would need from me? And she always does. Always. Why, yes! You see the dishes? You can help me uh, set the table. Help me. Do I want to do that? No, I don't. Rarely ever. All right, go to my kids. Yeah, check on the kids. They probably need something. Hey, kids, you don't possibly need anything from me, do you? Yeah, help us on our own work. No, I don't know how to do algebra anymore. Right? But great people, when, when I'm great, I'm going to Sabrina, I'm going to my kids, and I'm delaying heading to the couch. And usually, I end up having some time during the day for, for myself. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all servant. Great people, truly great people, pick up the servant's towel. They pick up the servant's towel. They see needs because they're looking around and they're noticing other people and they notice what other people need and they don't just sit there and they don't just say, be warm and well fed. They pick up the servant's towel and they go and they help. And it takes time and it takes energy and it, sometimes it takes money. And, and that's what great people do and that's what Jesus did. Uh, there is a church, a small church in Rochester, Minnesota. Uh, and it's called uh, Rochester Church of Christ. And in, back in the 1950s, the, the Mayo Clinic, by the way, is in Rochester, uh, Minnesota. And the Mayo Clinic is excellent, and so people from all over the country would come to Rochester to, to go to the hospital, and they would have to find some accommodations. 
and the hotels were often expensive. And so this church said, you know what? We see a need. We're going to minister to people by opening up our homes and, and invite people in, and we're going to just uh, give them a, a, a family touch and uh, give them a free place to stay. And they've been doing that since the 1950s. And for some people in the church, it was like literally one guest after the next, after the next. This was a ministry. And then in, the ni- in 1977, the church uh, ended up deciding they were going to fund a full-time chaplain to care for these people. And then in 1985, they bought a house with six rooms, and they started the first House of Compassion. And the church uh, all, uh, does all the, you know, the, they volunteer to do the cleaning and the cooking, and they've got some house parents and the chaplains there, and they're constantly booked. And you, if you have to go to the Mayo Clinic, you can go online and uh, uh, fill out a form and stay there for free. And in 2007, they built their second home, and this is just a church of 80 people, uh, 80 people, and that's, that is their ministry. They're, I love that because it's a church on mission, serving together. Great people serve. In, uh, continuing in Philippians chapter 2, we read this in verse 4. Uh, I'm sorry, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So put on the mind of Christ. Else, uh, Other translations say, uh, let this attitude be yours. That is also Christ Jesus. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or clung to. So, does Jesus serve people because he has low self-esteem? Does he say, everybody else is truly better than I, and so I just should be serving them because they're all great, and I'm not great? No, Jesus knew, he knows full well who he is. He is the son of the living God, the second person of the Trinity, the creator of the universe. He could absolutely, rightfully demand that we, his creation, serve him, the creator, and instead... He chooses to be a servant, not because he has low self-esteem, but because he values us and he is great. So he doesn't uh, cling to his rights and demand his rights. He lets them go. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, so he chose, to, he chose to take upon a much lower status than uh, belonged to him that was rightfully his. And being for, found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Jesus didn't put limits to his servants. He didn't say, I will serve you. Uh, until it becomes too inconvenient. I will serve you until it begins to you know, cost too much or it becomes painful or until you stop appreciating it. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus served to the point of death. He gave it, his servants gave his all. And that's why Jesus is the greatest, which is why the next verse says, therefore... God has highly exalted him 
and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, greatness in the kingdom of God is service. And the greatest is last of all and service of all, servant of all, and that's who Jesus is. That's what he did. That's why God exalts him, because he is truly great. Will you be a servant? Do, do you look around at people and say to yourself, uh, my calling, my greatness calling is to serve them. What needs do they have? How can I be of help? How can I serve? Every time we do that, we are great. The more often we run, race to the end of the line, the more often we serve other people, the greater we are in God's eyes. Verse 36, now Jesus gives an object lesson. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. So who are we to serve? Those who cannot repay. Great people serve those who cannot repay. So the child is not being uh, cho uh, chosen here because they're innocent. Uh, oh, the, child's be the child has a low social status in Jesus' day. And so Jesus is saying, you know, a child can't repay you. A child is unimportant in, in the eyes of the world. But I want you to spend time and energy and uh, money on serving kids, on serving those who can't turn around and repay you. So this week, I just immediately jumped to mind of some people in our church. One is Robert Arnold, right? Um, Dr. Bob, and he heads off regularly. We're sending him out to Burma, and he has the Burma vision. And he's there helping people in uh, Myanmar see. And they're not paying him. And he doesn't expect them to pay him. He can't even bill their insurance. Uh, he, he's there serving. And he could be here seeing more people in his Anchorage office and getting paid, right? That's, that's a service. Uh, I think of Robin Stralka this week, very busy helping people prepare their taxes for free. And she doesn't even get a portion of their rebate, I don't think. No, it's all, it's all volunteer. And many of you volunteer down at the, uh, the Hope Center. Not because you expect that someday they're going to, you know, turn around and repay you. It's you are doing that because you are following Christ's example. And God says that is great. And he counts that greatness uh, in his kingdom. Matthew chapter 25. <clears throat> Jesus uh, t tells us this. The king has, the son of man comes, he says, when the son of man comes in his glory, and he's going to gather the people, and he's going to demand an account, and he's going to say, hey, I was naked, and you didn't 
take care of me. I was a stranger. Actually, it was, it's a positive. He says, I was a stranger. You welcomed me. I was naked. You clothed me. I was sick. You visited me. I was in prison. You came to see me. And the righteous will answer, when did we do that? We never, we didn't see you naked and hungry and in prison. And he said, whenever you did it to the least of these, you do it to me. And so here's the deal. Uh, how often it does our, our natural mind and say, that person's not worth my attention. Now, if it were Jesus, of course I would serve him. Of course I would serve that person. But are they really, are they really worth my attention, worth my money, worth my time? And Jesus is saying, actually... I want you to see that any person you serve, child, adult, anywhere on the earth, it's the same thing as serving me. They're absolutely worth your, uh, your service. And so as, will we cultivate that attitude, choosing to help people who cannot repay? So let me... Um, you, we all have our own um, people that God is calling us to serve. We all have our own needs that we are choosing to say no to in order to take care of other people. But let me just give you some examples uh, to, to get you thinking about how, how God, what God's call on your life might be. Number one, a great person in God's eyes is a police officer who refuses to take bribes, showing no favoritism or bigotry, and seeks justice for all people. A great person in God's eyes is a teacher who delays retirement because she's at the top of her game, and there are still ch children needing to be taught with love. A great person in God's eyes is an executive who leverages their business expertise to help a nonprofit succeed. A great person in God's eyes is a victim who chooses not to demand restitution in order to facilitate reconciliation. A great person in God's eyes is a child who spends their inheritance, I'm sorry, their allowance. <laughs> inheritance is different. Spends their allowance sponsoring a child. A great person in God's eyes is a single who spends discretionary time helping Im immigrants settle into the community. A great person in God's eyes is a dad who remains at a job he dislikes in order to continue to provide for his family. A great person in God's eyes is a mom who gives birth to a child with disabilities and then spends herself caring for that child. A great person in God's eyes is a prayer warrior who brings other people's needs to the Lord in prayer. A great person in God's eyes is a husband who gives himself in self-sacrifice to one woman and avoids anything that might ruin that marriage. And on and on it goes. Do you want to be truly great? Race to the end of the line. Pick up the servant's towel. Serve those who cannot repay.